Clemency's The Future of Healthcare in Tennessee and Outsourcing, another conversation with Governor Bill Haslam as he enters his final days in office. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. This is the week of December 25th. Merry Christmas. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than by opening gifts and eating while listening to a show about Tennessee politics. Can I can't you? think of anything more festive. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. This week, we are sharing with you a conversation we recently had with Governor Bill Haslam. Of course, he's in his final weeks now. So we sat down and talked to him about, you know, some of the issues that have come up during his tenure. Uh, We recorded this the same day that Lamar Alexander announced that he was not going to be running for 2020. That was on Monday, December 17th. Uh, At one point in the interview, Governor Haslam does mention that clemencies could be coming later that week. Um, At the time of this recording of this intro, there still hadn't been any clemency announcements made or pardons. Um, But just for perspective there, that was that was a remark he made uh, on December 17th. First of all, thank you, Governor, for yet again coming on Grand Divisions. We appreciate your continued uh, listenership as well as uh, participation. Is this like Saturday Night Live where you get a jacket up <laughs> after you've been on like five times or something? <laughs> we might start doing that, okay. yeah. Especially when you're out of office, we'll That's have right. to give you a, yeah, <laughs> a exactly. jacket for it. I know this keeps coming up everywhere you go yeah. these days, but let's talk about Centoya Brown yeah. for a second. Uh, it's a case that's drawing national attention. We have really? celebrities every day yeah. tweeting at you, it seems like. We've had, what, Amy Schumer recently, and, of course, Kim Kardashian, Rihanna. Um, you've said, and you said this at, at your forum the other week, that you aren't going to treat her case any differently, that you're going right. to treat it like all the others before you. So can you talk about how you do review clemency requests, and how are you going to approach her case? Yeah, and, and think about that. You don't really want a governor to do any different than that, right? If you said... I know, let's get 50,000 people to call the governor's office and then we'll make a, he or she will make a decision about what's fair based on it. That's not, that's no different than if somebody had a really wealthy father and you made a decision, you know, you make it based on the facts. So really what we look at is what actually happened, where, what were the extenuating circumstances, either mitigating or aggravating factors uh, of, of what happened. And then what's happened since, is there been, has there been rehabilitation um, are the people, is the, the person involved truly, you know, uh, made uh, a, a sincere effort to change and do people around them feel like that's genuine? And then, again, you have to come back and weigh all that together, and it's both of those things. It's what actually happened and what's happened since then. And I'll be honest, I know we're talking about Centoya and everybody wants to take everything I say and put it on that, but all these are hard. So we're looking at a lot of pardon applications, clemency applications. You know, we've had to review uh, capital punishment cases. And from the outside, you might say, oh, this looks really simple one way or the other. But it, it rarely is. I mean, most folks who end up committing horrible crimes do have horrible backgrounds. You know, that, that it's just, unfortunately, the the, the, the relationship between an adverse childhood experience and folks who create cr- uh, crimes later in life, it's pretty direct. And so you have to weigh all that into it and try to come up with something that's fair to everybody involved and is a con- has a consistent basis to it. 
So is there some kind of rubric you use? Is there some kind of qualitative you know, I wish there was. I, I wish there do? was. I, I mean, I, if, it, if there was, it would be easier because we talk about that all the time, like, well, how, how rehabilitated is rehabilitated enough, right? I mean, none of us are perfect people, right? And you can um, go look at, you know, you say, well, what, what have they acted like since then? But it, it, I wish there was a, some sort of, you know, metric you could use that, you know, that took measurements, but there's really not. And I think as much as you want to be consistent, you also have to look at each individual case. And it's, I'll be honest with you, it's a, we purposely waited for all of these until we got to, to the end. And I, most governors and presidents do that, and I understand that. But I'll say this, they're all a lot more complex than I thought, or not all, most of them than I thought they would be. Any idea when we can expect some decisions on those clemency requests? Yeah, I think we'll. I think we could have some um, coming. You know, this week, uh, Centoya's, like I said, everybody because that's gotten all the attention. We have a little bit more work to do on that, so I don't think it will be this week. But I think we could have some others that that, are, that we announce this week. You famously pushed for uh, Medicaid expansion, right? Um, you know, I know you, we've talked about on the podcast here that that's sort of one of your regrets uh, that it didn't get done. Not right. pushing it, uh, right? That wasn't a regret. But when you think about where we're at today in the, in the Tennessee legislature, do you see is there any chance of that happening in the future? I actually think there is for this reason. Um, I think. It, having a Republican administration in Washington, hopefully the legislature says, well, okay, now we're separate enough from Obamacare. What can we design that it passes the law so that it, it, it fits the definition of Medicaid that HHS requires, and yet we can accept? So I actually think there's room for more flexibility now, you know, kind of counterintuitively because Obama's not there anymore and Trump is there that the legislature might say well let's see if we can work out something with this administration that works for us so I don't I don't know I mean I can't tell you exactly what that would look like but I think there is a way to do that in these next two years part of that will be the new administration getting comfortable with how it works what they personally believe and that takes I mean we didn't you know it, it takes you a while to, to to feel like well does this match what we believe and what works for our state have you encouraged the lee administration at all to seriously consider this is it a non-starter with them that say oh don't even talk no, to me well about i don't i mean I, I don't think i think what i we, we actually have not had that specific conversation um and i think for them they're, they're looking for i think here's the thing i'd say about the lee administration this this issue aside is what i like about them and the folks that they're hiring is they really do want to solve problems and I think they'll see healthcare as a problem that we need to deal with. And that doesn't just mean what do you do about expansion? It's about what do we do about having a healthier Tennessee? And what do we do about controlling 10 care costs? And what do we do about having folks who don't have access to any healthcare have it? So I think it's all those things together. Obviously, when the legislature was looking at this, when you were pushing it, it was a, it was a very political yeah. issue, yeah. Uh, and that's that's what we've heard in all sorts of conversations. Looking back on why you know some Republicans didn't go for it, right. uh, when maybe the numbers made it seem like it was something that was a good idea, and that's certainly right. what you suggested. Can you talk at all about some of the pushback you did receive for being a Republican who was in favor of it? Sure, I mean I think you know it's hard to uh, you know it's hard to uh, overstate just how partisan the affordable care act was remember it's it it, it it passed on a purely partisan i mean i don't think there was a republican vote either uh, in the house 
or the Senate on the Affordable Care Act. So it was a highly partisan deal. You had all the the controversy around Pelosi saying we have to pass it so you can read it and, you know, all the distrust about what was in the plan, et cetera. So you came into that. And so you had to do it. You had a lot of legislators who were like, if this is Obamacare, I'm not for it because it was it was so um, hyper, you know, sensitive or whatever. I mean, when I ran in 2010, it was there was a clear message out there. The Affordable Care Act is uh, is bad for the country and bad for the state. I mean, that's just so you weren't running on Medicaid expansion. Then. Well, they didn't have the issue. Remember <laughs> sure. this. So it, you, until the Supreme Court came in, I think in 12 and said yeah. states don't have to do it. There wasn't a sense of states are going to decide. Um, so that that really wasn't on. But it, I mean, in the legislator's defense, they were sitting, they were coming, you know, at that point in time, and that's all they had heard is Affordable Care Act, you know, bad, bad, bad. Um, and what we tried to do is say, here's how this is different from Obamacare, but we obviously weren't able to do it. And we, we might have, you know, in hindsight, made a strategic mistake. We called a special session to deal with it. Um, and I think kind of that it was too 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 tall a hill to climb in that period of time we might have been better off saying let's do it in regular session I, having said all that i still don't think it would have passed given the environment or maybe wait a, wait after maybe. another session could, you could have waited a little while and let the heat die down mm-hmm. some and come up with a strategic plan in light of senator alexander's decision mm-hmm. your you know forthcoming departure uh senator corker's only got a couple more weeks left is this sort of the end of an era in tennessee politics and in your opinion, what's the direction of the Republican Party in both Tennessee and on the national level? You know, uh, let, let's start on the national level. I mean, it's interesting, you know, nationally you have, um, when you poll Republicans, more say identify with the president than I do with the party if you if you poll that one, and certainly in the state too. So that's a little bit of uncharted water in terms of where we are. I don't know that that's what people would have said uh, for most presidents, regardless of party. So um, I think we'll have to see how that plays out for the party. For me, I've always said as Republicans, you know, we believe in um, uh, we believe in the free market economy. We believe in free trade. We believe in um, trying to make certain that our country's ba- balancing the budget for the long term. Those are kind of the fundamentals of what we believe in. Now, acting those out is obviously a lot harder, but I, I would always hope we'd come back to fundamentally that's who we are. In terms of whether we is this a the end of an era in Tennessee politics? Well, it is in a sense in which we have some people who have been in office. You know, Tennessee's unique in that we only have three statewide elected offices. So we've had for the last eight years, you've had Corker, Alexander, and Haslam in those spots. And the fact that none of the three of us will be there means, yeah, by definition, it's a different period. We'll, we'll have to see in terms of is there a any kind of long term trajectory change in terms of who we elect in our state. I've always made the point uh, in the past, a lot of the Republicans who got elected in Tennessee think a, you know, um, a Howard Baker or a uh, a Winfield Dunn or a Lamar Alexander had to win in an environment where the Democrats had control. Okay, so winning as the minority party candidate is very different than winning as a majority party candidate. And, you know, we'll have to see if that, you know, now the, I'm really, remember, I'm the first Republican governor in history to serve with a Republican majority legislature. So we kind of, this is, even though we see this hugely red state, it's still fairly recent phenomena. And let's see what happens as we start to live with that over a period of time. 
So do you think Tennessee is a moderate state? That, that was the sort of thing that, you know, Carl Dean was saying when he was running for governor, that he believed that Tennesseans were more moderate than maybe the legislature would have us believe. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I guess it, we can all say, you know, here's what we think the state is like. But at the end of the day, you are who you elect. You are who you elect. I mean, and you say, well, everybody doesn't vote, et cetera. But that's that's how it works. Democracy is who votes, who gets registered to vote, who goes out there and votes. And we've, you know, you can tell by who we vote for. I, mean, I think Tennessee's a pretty conservative state at this point in time. If you look at the body of the legislature and then, you know, uh, Governor Lee, Senator Blackburn, you know, and actually the, the other, I mean, I, again, I, I would argue um, Governor Haslam, Senator Alexander, Senator Corker, if you look at kind of true conservative beliefs are all right there as well. In the 2016 presidential election, you were known as the Republican governor who did not support right. Trump as a presidential candidate. So we're two years into his presidency. Uh, how do you think he has influenced the party? How do you think he's influencing um, the direction of politics in the country? And are you happy with that direction? Yeah, so, um, y you know, in terms of, uh, you got to look at, at the president and say, hey, there have been a lot of accomplishments. I mean, if you look at the economy, really isn't a good place. I mean, again, it's not, but even look around the world, the other countries are starting to slow up a lot more than we we have. I mean, if you look at the economy in Tennessee, we're, we're doing really well, and there's been a lot of things that I think of, I mean, the, the tax plan, I do think, led to more capital investment. I do think some of the trade policies, while I'm not, my style wouldn't be the same as his, it has, um, it has ended up with some companies saying, we, we, we're going to invest more domestic, we're going to invest more in the U.S. Uh, than we are uh, going to import things. So there's been some real benefit as that, to that as well. I'm, um, in terms of its impact on the country and the state, I think it's a little early to say. I mean, he obviously has his own style, which is totally his style, and um, it's that's it's not mine, uh, and it's not one that I think other people even can can copy. I'm always amused when somebody says, "Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm I'm like Donald Trump." Well, I don't think there's anybody like Donald Trump. I just don't think there is. And so, what's the impact of that? I think it's TBD because it's this. We're in. He's a he's a, a president. He was a candidate like no other. He's a president like very few others I can think of. And we'll have to see what the impact of that is. So you've given him some props for some of his accomplishments. Do you think he should run in 2020? Should he seek re-election? Well, I mean, I think he's going to. I mean, he's, he's certainly not going to, you know, uh, going to call me and ask. But I, I think he's going to run. Uh, he might call you. Yeah, <laughs> he might. Uh, but, uh, and, yeah, I mean, he's, listen, I, I, it's, I guess there's some scenario that he's not the Republican nominee, but it's a, I think it's a pretty slight, I mean, I, I wouldn't take those odds to Vegas. Is there anyone else you'd like to see run in his place? No, I mean, I, again, I mean, he's he's the president. He'll be the nominee of the party. I think it's a little bit of a, yeah, the answer is that's, I, I'm, I'm certainly not out looking for somebody else, and I think he'll be our nominee. You were the uh, chairman of the Republican Governors right. Association for the this year's elections. What's your sort of post-mortem now that you look at, you know, uh, your month removed from the election? How did Republicans fare in the, the governor's races? Yeah, I think it was a... Uh, given the, the 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 map and the way it worked, with you know there were 36 races, 26 of those were our seats. So that the Senate, it was a really good map for Republicans, and so you shouldn't the Senate shouldn't get too excited about oh we we came out with additional seats because of the way the map was. 
the governor's races were the exact opposite. We not only had 26 that we were defending versus 10 that they were, but we had won in some places which historically had been difficult, an Illinois and a New Mexico, which are blue states, uh, a Michigan, uh, which is you know, pretty pretty difficult for Republicans, a, a Maine, which is really difficult. So there were some places where we had won in 10 and 14 that were going to be hard. Having said all that, if you look and say, well, we won Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire. Georgia. Uh, and the, I'm kind of those three in the Northeast. And then Georgia and Florida, two yeah. really close ones, that could, which could have gone the other way. And then you add to that Iowa and Ohio, you'd say it was a – okay good but not great night for us could have been i mean if if georgia florida and either ohio or iowa go the other way then you'd say that was a really good night for the dems <laughs> fortunately it didn't <laughs> you you talked extensively with adam tambran david plazas the other day at yeah. your form on higher education for a while. <laughs> yeah so i encourage all of our listeners to check out that i think we have video of that um so i'm going to ask you about a slightly different facet of higher education you spend a lot of energy pushing for the outsourcing of maintenance right. and other services at right. Tennessee's public universities. And you've got a lot of pushback for that. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of criticism from some lawmakers. Um, can you talk about why you push so hard for that? Looking back, was that the right thing to do? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know that we pushed any harder for that than we did in cutting expenses a lot of other places. I mean, my basic point's been this. if You you shouldn't just keep running government the way you always have. You have to find ways to have savings because the issue is your ten care costs go up so much faster typically than your revenue does if you're not careful. If you leave everything the same, you're going to be in the position Tennessee was in several years ago. So we cut about $570 million in ongoing expenses trying to make certain that didn't happen. That was part of a plan saying, why, you know, why should we do things that other people can do better? And I think what struck me as surprising is that people thought this was a brand new idea, like, oh, we're going to outsource things. Well, very few of our of our public school, public universities run their own food service program now. They, they outsourced it a long time ago. Very few of them uh, run uh, a lot of the things that actually happen on their campus. And by the way, even the state dealing with our most vulnerable citizens are in the Department of Intellectual Developmental Disabilities or DCS. We outsource that, if, if that's the word you want to use, to other folks, and we always have. The difference here is you had a very effective lobby uh, being... Uh, those workers, the, the United Campus Workers Unions and others who who said, look, they're getting ready to take away our jobs, which, by the way, was just not true. So was there some kind of messaging problem with the proposal? I, I think there was, and I think you just had it. You saw it in a very effective lobbying effort by the other side. They're, they're, they said, we're all going to lose our jobs, which was not true. Everybody's job was guaranteed. Well, we're going to lose, you know, their, their seniority went, their, their benefits were going to be better. Uh, it just wasn't true. We just, we unfortunately kind of lost the public argument. I would, the other thing working against us, to be honest with you, is um, we were doing too well at funding education. We were putting record amounts of money into higher education, so they weren't feeling a budget pinch. If they had been a situation where we're going to have to raise tuition again next year 8%, um, then people might, whoa, what, what are our alternatives here? And say, so, well, everybody can keep their job. You're going to get just as good a service, um, and it's going to save us money. People go, well, let's do that instead of raise tuition. But because we were in a good times and we were fully funding public education to amounts never before seen, they didn't feel the pinch. As we look to, to wrap up here, um, today you had your uh, official portrait yeah. revealed. 
you've got about one month left as of this recording. Um, what do you do in the last month that you're governor? What's on the docket? You, you know, I, I think I must be doing something wrong because I thought this last month would be this kind of, you know, easy street, like, hey, come <laughs> on by, you know, four-hour lunches. But some of those, I mean, a lot of our time, quite frankly, is taken up with the pardon and clemency applications. So I spend an inordinate amount of time with our legal foot department. Um, I am trying to get back around. One of the things I've tried to do on a regular basis is be in every department because, uh, that, again, that's that's what we do. We, we the, the things that are happening in departments, what state government really exists to do. And so I'm going to try trying to one last visit to each of those departments. And then we still got a couple, three big economic development opportunities in front of us. So uh, you add all that up with um, – at some point in time, I'm going to have to pack up and move out of that house and out of the office. I hope I'm not there like during the inauguration uh, <laughs> ceremonies. They'll say, what happened to Hassel? He's back cleaning out his closet, you know. Uh, I won't be there. I'm kidding. Don't, Bill and Marie, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, but it's actually been way busier than I thought it would be because of that. I, so, Have you been able to be involved at all in the transition? You know, we have. Uh, it, to, we we kind of made a commitment like, a year ago before we knew it was going to put together what we call these, you know, continuance of state operations, these really detailed kind of here's what's happening department by department. But then we wanted to be also helpful and just what, what are the problems that we ran into, the things that we wish we had known when we came in. Uh, and so uh, we've, we've done that. And to, their, to the least team credit, and I mean this, they've been great about reaching out, asking questions, saying, tell me how this works. Uh, and, you know, Bill and Maria and everything from – tell us what it's like to live in the governor's residence, to having troopers with you all the time, to tell me what you were looking for in an, in an education committee. I mean, the whole gamut of things. They've, they've done a great job of, of reaching out and asking questions and then coming to their own answers. Well, Governor Haslam, thank you for your time again. Thank, thank you for you. coming on. Yeah, glad to do and, it. And uh, we're going to work on making you a jacket. So next time I you come like on, it'll be a third, an third time. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that very much. <laughs> and we look forward to seeing what you do next. So. Well, thanks. Me too, but I appreciate it. I do. I, I'll just end with this, and I do listen to your show. I do read what y'all write, and and I I do encourage other people to do that. Except not that y'all always get it right, but it, one of the discouraging things to me, and I've tried to make this point over and over, is how much less people know about state and local news now than they did eight years ago. And this migration to getting your news from just from your favorite um, internet source or from your favorite cable channel is not good for any of us. And folks need to listen to news that comes through an editor um, uh, and uh, has, you know, at least, you know, the, the, it has the objective of we want to try to tell the whole story. So uh, I'm, I don't like I don't always like you, but I'm always cheering that uh, more people will see the importance of this. Thanks, Governor. We appreciate it. Thanks again. We will, of course, continue to track the final days of Governor Haslam's time in office and bring you continued coverage as he hands off the keys of state government to Governor-elect Bill Lee. Of course, Natalie and I will be providing coverage of the inauguration as well as other um, you know, stories leading into the inauguration. Uh, as you know, every week, Grand Divisions comes out on Tuesdays. This particular episode was produced by Erica Whitney, who came with us to the Capitol for the recording of the interview with uh, Governor Haslam. Uh, as always, you can find us and rate us on iTunes, and you can also find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next time.